Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. I'm Mick Garris, and welcome once again to Postmortem AMA, where you have a chance to ask me anything. And with us is our producer, Joe Russo. I will be answering the questions that he will ask on your behalf. And you can ask your questions through Joe Russo tweets on Twitter or PostmortemMG on Twitter or at Instagram at PostmortemGram. Yeah. So, Joe, what do we got in store today? We've got, we've got some good questions today. Um, so it's about we'll time. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I've, we've, all, we've always got good questions. We have, ah, we have very good fans. The uh, best. The best. Uh, so I'm not sure how to pronounce this name. I'm just going to take a stab. Mus Hussein asks... Uh, with the misfire at the box office of the Hellboy reboot, do you think film studios will be less willing to greenlight horror film reboots in the future? I don't really think of Hellboy as a horror film. No, I didn't either. I thought of it more as a comic, a book, comic movie. book superhero yes. with horror elements. But, yeah. You know, a lot of reboots fail, and a lot of them are hugely successful. Right. Um, so uh, you look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pet Cemetery, you know, these are really successful movies, so it's hard to say that there's a string of failed reboots. I wouldn't mind in the slightest if they didn't make them anymore, but sure. <laughs> it's so much easier to sell a familiar title right. than it is to come up with something new. Right. Uh, I would much rather see something new. I think the ones that should be rebooted are the ones that were a good idea that didn't quite work. Or maybe the special effects weren't quite there then. Yeah, you or know? something. But, yeah. but Give it a uh, reason to reboot it. A reason to reboot. So for me, franchises and reboots aren't nearly as interesting as as original genre stuff. Um, so, I, you know, the, the question itself... Um, I, I would agree with you. I don't think that uh, the fate of horror reboots hinges on Hellboy specifically, <laughs> yeah. yes. whether it had been a success or not. Right. Um, and uh, I wish it had been more successful because of our friend Neil Marshall. I know. Friend of the yeah, show. Such friend a of the great show. filmmaker. Absolutely. Yeah, who so, did not have a great experience on that film. No. Apparently. Maybe someday we'll get him back on and we can pick his brain a little bit. But, That's uh, right. But uh, all right. Well, no. so our next question then, uh, Andre J writes... Why do you think European horror movies are remade for U.S. audiences besides the financial aspect? Movies like Wreck and Martyrs. Uh, and are there any European movies that you've seen, European horror movies that you've seen that you would like to remake? Um, it's a two-parter. <laughs> yeah, I think they get remade because they're good ideas that nobody in the States knows about. Right. You know, here are, are plots that may not have been considered or thought of or made as movies previously in the States, but could be made. Americans are, are very chauvinistic about their language. They're very loath to watch movies with subtitles, yeah. particularly horror movies with subtitles. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but things like martyrs and and the like um they get made because of the possibility especially if they're successful in other countries or on the horror festival circuit right as far as remake ones uh there's a movie i just saw on hulu that is a scandinavian film called the guilty okay and it's amazing it all takes place in a police station in one room uh i hear that there are already remake plans for it i was looking into it yeah but um it's a movie that i highly recommend and I just saw it a week or so ago, and I never think, wow, I'd love to remake this. Sure, sure. But this is one that made me say, wow, I'd love to remake yeah. this. But it looks like that's not in the cards. Yeah, I, I mean, to, you know, my, my opinion is it's no different than adapting a book or a comic book or some other piece of intellectual property, right? right? They're just, they're taking something that they know is a good idea and they know worked in one market and they're trying to expand it into another. And like you said, as soon as Americans see subtitles, suddenly it becomes a niche art house movie. Exactly. And uh, I actually, I actually think that the the horror genre fans are actually the ones who are probably more likely to watch a horror film from another country. They would be, but they have shown they're not willing to go out to the theaters. To right. Do it. They'll wait till they They'll see watch it on, it on Shutter, Netflix Hulu, or Shutter. Or, yeah. yeah. Shutter is a great place. They seem to be even less um, mindful yeah. of movies with subtitles. I think, I think you know, like uh, our, our friend uh, Carly Fajot with Revenge did it really smart where it is a French movie, but they spoke in English. Almost so entirely it, in so English. So it could play yeah. very well in the States. And I think, I think she really opened up her audience because of that. Yeah, I uh, think that's a great movie that should not be remade. No, I, I, and I don't yeah. think it will. I don't think it needs yeah, to be. Yeah, it is mostly in English, yeah. uh, even though it's perceived as a French film. But yeah. there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. And I would much rather people see the originals and in their original language. Yeah, I agree. Well, speaking of friends of the podcast that keep coming up in answers, <laughs> uh, our friends uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods from A Quiet Place <laughs> Uh, they asked a question, I guess, kind of of, of both of us. Uh, they wanted to know that before I left for New Mexico uh, about six weeks ago, if we had any conversations where you gave me advice about my directorial debut. Which we did what, indeed we have, did that, have conversation. that conversation. And, and <laughs> I mean, it happened so quickly because, I mean, there was maybe a week between getting greenlit and going out to New Mexico. Right. And uh, you were literally the only person I could, like, I, I, I said, Mick, I have to meet with you. <laughs> Can we meet at Aroma? Yep, your, your spot. Yeah. And, and so with that, that conversation did take place. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you remember any of the things we talked about. Yeah, I think there were a lot of things that we talked we discussed, a lot. You for, know, we talked one, for about two or three hours. Yeah, one uh, of the main things was how important it is to make your actors feel comfortable yes. and secure, yes. and that you're their safety net and you're there to encourage them, and how people respond best to a director who's there to encourage. If you're a yeller and screamer, they get used to that, and then they want to do the least amount of work possible to Absolutely. get by. Uh, but well, and it was very cool because about halfway through the shoot, I got a text from one of my leads saying pretty much just that, and I sent it to you, and I said, "Look, yeah. I took your advice, and it's working." <laughs> well, that's good to know because it could have really fallen on its own. <laughs> but you know, really, the the main the main advice I would give to a new filmmaker, like we talked about, and and if there's other stuff you want to add to it sure. that we discussed is that 
it's hard to make a movie and the more pleasant and pleasurable you can make it for all involved the better experience it's going to be and the better movie it's going to be yeah. everybody's there to do their job and hopefully all of them do it better than you would do it in their position and encouraging them to find encourage and allow the best people to do their best work is i think one of the primary roles of the director so yeah. i don't know what else we discussed no and and you know and the nice thing was even before we we sat down and really reiterated that i got to watch you and 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 the other guys do that on nightmare cinema and and watch yeah. watch you practice what what you preached and <laughs> and i really took that to heart and I mean, gosh, like a lot of the cast and crew said that that was one of the most fun sets they were on. And it was, you know, it was always it was always a good time, even when we were kind of riding crazy waves because we had a very short schedule and a very low budget. But uh, um, I think the other thing that you said was, you know, you kind of we we talked about the advice that Spielberg had given you, uh, which I think is a great piece of advice. I'll let you say because I'll butcher it. But. Well, what he said to me when I was doing my first directing job on Amazing Stories, he said, do things you'd be afraid of being fired for because I promise you I'm not going to fire you. Yeah, yeah. And that really allowed me to think bigger, to to not worry about... uh, Often, when you're new at something, you think everybody else knows better than you. Right. But the reason you're there as a director is because your vision is being fulfilled yeah. and all of these people can help fulfill it and you want to draw on the knowledge of people who have more experience than you do but you also need to have the strength to go you know this is a good idea that i think is going to work really well even if it's not how you would have done it because often people who are experienced will do it the way they've done it or the easiest way. Yeah. And I had, you know, and luckily I was that that advice was applicable here because right before I left, I had a very similar conversation with my producers where they said, you know, don't don't go watch comps of of this these styles of movies. Go go make your own movie, make it your own, make it your own style. And so like the 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 permission that they gave plus that advice I think led to us, you know, trying out some a couple shots here and there within reason because we were on a limited time and budget uh but and that was the other thing you said was you know get the coverage focus on getting the story but every now and then try to you know listen to your dp andrew russo who's great and you've worked with him before too and listen to his ideas and listen to the other ideas around you and i think that was something that i really you know i've been hearing you know from back from our first postmortem, you and Rob Zombie talked about how like you do the shot list, but then when you get there, you kind of throw it out. Right. And just because of production, you know, issues and because of schedule and time and whatnot, you know, a lot of the, the shot list that Andrew and I created, we had to pare down quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so what I started to do was to just watch the actors and see what they were doing and then frame the shots react in reaction to that. And that's the most um, important thing. The performances and the stories matter yep. more than jerking off with a camera. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So so I think just yeah, those those are probably the big things that through our conversations and through postmortem and through nightmare cinema I took and I tried to apply and it seemed to have worked. Uh, my editor seems very happy. So, <laughs> well, we'll see the movie. And yeah, I know. know. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm a feature filmmaker. We'll find out if I'm a good one. Uh, <laughs> I have all confidence in you, oh, young man. You, uh, so one last, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, 
bigger question is people have been asking a lot about your kind of old jobs that you've done throughout the years. And, and I thought maybe let's go back to the first one. Uh, you know, it's, it's just after May. And, and I think when you think summer, you think star Wars. Uh, so you worked in the star Wars offices back at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I, my job before that was at tower records in Westwood as the night manager. Wow. And singing in a band, which I still was doing when I got hired at Star Wars. But a friend of mine, uh, a journalist, told me that they were looking for someone. I was dying to work in the film world. I was writing screenplays, but didn't know what to do with them. And this friend told me they were looking for somebody who didn't say for what job at the Star Wars Corporation right after the movie had opened. Okay. So the movie had come out. The movie had just come out. Okay. Got it. And was on the verge of, well, it, it, was, it was it was blowing up. It, it blew up. Right. And I went and met with Charlie Lippincott, who was the first person to, to specialize in publicity, particularly aimed at the genre audience. He went to science fiction conventions. He, he premiered a, a slideshow at Comic-Con in wow. San Diego before wow. any other movie had ever done that. So... I found out my job. Uh, I went in and applied, and it was to be a receptionist for $150 a week. And my job was primarily to pick up the phone and say, Star Wars, may I help you? And (laughs) then transfer calls. Um, Now, had you seen seen the movie at this point? I saw the movie and just blew my mind. So you were excited to be in this environment, Oh, hugely excited, yeah. I mean... I was on that opening day at the Chinese Theater in right. Hollywood on right. Hollywood Boulevard. Wow. And, and uh, a part of that big audience. Yeah. And um, so they knew that I was capable of more than doing just answering the phone. So um, I became R2-D2's handler. Right. I, uh, I operated the remote control robot on like a Kenner commercial on Disney, uh, Mickey Mouse's 50th birthday. Wow. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, I operated R2-D2 on the Oscars. Yeah, in which is such a cool photo. That, that so. Every time that photo comes up, it's, it's really cool. <laughs> it's pretty uh, amazing. Yeah, but you were also there when they did the Christmas special, right? I was. I operated R2 for the Christmas you, special. You, you, you were on the set for that. I was on the set. Yeah. It was, it's kind of legendary in how bad it is. And on how atrocious <laughs> it is. Yeah, well, it, uh, we only worked a couple of days with R2, I think. Right. But, um yeah. When you saw it, did you look around and say, like, what is this? Or, I mean, like, did... Well, we were mostly around the Wookiee tree. Okay, the, right, the Wookie right, family tree for Life there. Day. Uh, uh, and uh, so I wasn't there for Don Knotts and B. Arthur and you know, <laughs> the, the people who were in it. But it did seem incredibly lame. Right, <laughs> even right. Even at the time. Well, I mean, it must have, like, coming off of the, the wild success of the movie, been yeah. kind of like... What are we? What are we? Well, doing? it had been uh, adopted by everyone who could get their hands on it. You right. Know, CBS knew they could make money on a Star Wars Christmas special, and George Lucas didn't own it. Twentieth Century Fox did, or at least right. enough at the time to where they oh, let's make money with CBS. Doing right, because he special. he had rights for the sequels, not necessarily for the first. Right, movie. for everything and the merchandising and right. all that. He right. maintained all the rights yes. to merchandising. Yeah, the the, the greatest was, deal ever yeah. made in the history of Hollywood. Yeah, which uh, was partly constructed by the guy who became my attorney, Andy Rigrod. Yeah, and yeah. Um, 
but Charlie Lippincott was a big part of that. So, yeah, it was incredibly exciting to be around at that time, my first job working on Star Wars. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, well, I guess on that note, we'll wrap up this week's right. AMA. Another postmortem AMA. Again, any questions that you might have for me, send them to Joe at Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter, uh, postmortem MG on Twitter, uh, postmortem Graham on Instagram. And I look forward to seeing and answering your questions. Thanks, Mick. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 